Osiris. Hey guys, before we go beyond the pond, we are very excited to tell you about our sponsor for this week. The holidays are right around the corner. What do you get for the fish fan who has everything? Aside from the war on drugs lost in the dream on vinyl? Nah, you get them ice cream. If you guys know anything about this podcast, you know that we care about three things. The song Mercury, the 1969 baseball season, and ice cream. That's why we're very excited to discuss Ben & Jerry's ice cream. Ben & Jerry's has collaborated with Fish and the Waterwheel Foundation to create a limited flavor. It's ice cream. A caramel malt ice cream with almond toffee pieces, fudge fish, and a caramel swirl. The packaging for the ice cream and a very limited t-shirt were designed by Jim Pollock. And a portion of the proceeds for the ice cream and all of the proceeds for the t-shirts were donated to the Waterwheel Foundation. The ice cream and the teas can be ordered at store.benjerry.com. If you use the promo code OSIRIS, it's O-S-I-R-I-S, you can get free shipping on all orders over $50 for the rest of 2018. There's also a special curveball fish food slash waterwheel tea week that was created for the canceled festival that can be purchased online. Now let's go beyond the pond. Slipping on the friction slide, my skin feels to the bone. The flesh I leave behind is something. David Goldstein. I am Brian Brinkman. You're tuned in to episode 47 of the Beyond the Pond podcast. This is the podcast in which Brian and myself generally use the music of Fish as a means of introducing the listener to other bands. These are usually not jam bands. As, as you know, we love Fish. We love Fish dearly. We are Fish fans. The problem with a lot of Fish fans is they get myopic. They neglect to see the forest for the trees. They do not understand that there's other bands out there to fish. We're going to do something about that. Absolutely. And we are here in our 47th episode recapping the Nashville and Chicago shows from fall 2018. The specific focus on two jams, the Mike song from uh, Nashville's Night One and the Mercury from Chicago Night Two, two jams that we both thought were fantastic and we thought really encapsulated the best parts of those two runs we're very excited to break these down share some music uh we've got a couple themes here set up for you guys i think you're gonna really dig and i think that you guys are gonna like the uh the approach that we come with here it's gonna be very fitting as we move into halloween 
So themes you're going to explore in this episode include joy out of the greatest three-day weekend city in America. <laughs> the best song at 3.0 grows its wings. And where we stand heading into Halloween 2018. And on that note, let's get to the fish. covering the Mike song from uh, Nashville, Tennessee, and Mercury from from Rosemont, Illinois, I should say, right outside of Chicago. Well, if nothing else, these were two of the most exciting jams of the fall tour. One of them is a fish staple, once a jam vehicle until it wasn't, and has floated with improvisational brilliance in the last three years. The other, our personal choice for the song of 3.0, one that has displayed a penchant for improvisation for the last two years, but never fully broke free until this performance. To say that we were thrilled by these two jams would be a massive understatement, right? Yeah, and to make things even funnier, while the Mercury was going on, I was seeing Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, and I think you were in a movie theater seeing A Star is Born, right? That's correct. Yeah, so I was... As the Nick Cave concert was going, I was just kind of periodically glancing at the fish set list on my phone and then getting all these texts from saying, they're taking Mercury deep. This is your song. You're missing it. Yeah, to all of our fans who were uh, ribbing on us on Friday night (laughs) while we both missed the live debut of a true Mercury Type 2 jam, thank you. You get us. We appreciate that. You guys are funny. <laughs> also, if any of you get an opportunity to see Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, fucking go. That was an incredible show. Like, non-fish division, maybe the best concert I've seen in the past five years. Not even kidding. Pretty awesome statement. You see a lot of really good music. So I'm, I'm definitely yeah. looking to see him when he comes through Denver here. Um, so Mike's song has been a little bit of a conundrum here for the last 15, 20 years in that it hasn't really jammed beyond the F-sharp B jam that we get um, throughout the immediate jam segment following the Mike song chorus. And for the last 20 years, that's really all that we've been getting from the song. That is until August 4th, 2015, when Drew hits uh, great fish fan, uh, on uh, Twitter as at Drew Fish and a Beyond the Pond fan that we have to have on the episode on on the uh, the podcast here soon. Um, he played Trey the last mics with the second jam, which I believe was from Columbus, Ohio, summer two thousand, and the band responded that night with one of the biggest moments of three Since then, we got another mm-hmm. jam on August 9th, two thousand fifteen, at Alpine Valley. And then a gorgeous 20-minute monster on August 2nd, 2017, during the Baker's Dozen. Holes Night. Big Holes night. night. Love that jam. And it goes right into uh, uh, All Holy Night, which is one of the 
most 1994 fish things that they've ever done past 1994. I love it. Yeah, here they don't even mess with getting through to the first jam. So this isn't so much the Mike's second jam because they never <laughs> really completed the first jam. They right. just go and Trey just hits on a major key. I think it's C major. I'd have to go back and listen to it. But then he just starts putting up these gorgeous major key lead lines. And once he hits it, they just go for it. And we're off to the races. And it's like between 14 and 15 minutes of improvisational awesome. One of the most unique Mike's jams ever played. Maybe on par with uh, December 30th, 1993. And it segues directly into a ghost that has a jam that I like to think of as Napalm Fire. Because it's just, it's all over the place. It's incredible. Yeah, and we really could have picked any jam from that second set in uh, in Nashville. I mean, that was one of the best sets of the year, one of the best sets of 3.0. And if you haven't listened to Night One of Nashville's um, second set, I mean, I recommend going back and listening to it immediately. Um, just unbelievable performances from the band. Um, that was October 24th. And very fluid, lots of jams within jams. Um, and the ghost, yeah, it, I don't think I've ever listened to a fish jam where Mike and Trey are almost competing the entire way throughout, but it's like they're weaving in and out of each other's riffs. It was like the most collaborative competition I've heard from the two of them. They both wanted the lead and both neither gave it up, but like it worked perfectly. Um, with regard to the Mercury, uh, the one they played in Chicago and set one kind of Followed a similar path to the best versions to date. We got uh, October 29th, 2016 from Las Vegas. January 14, 2017 from Riviera Maya. Uh, July 28, 2017. That was um, from Chocolate Night, Double Chocolate. July 24, 2018. October 17, 2018. Except here, uh, Paige kind of found a way out of uh, the meat and potatoes of the jam. Led the band into a major key jam, I think A major, and it kind of ended on um, a really, really tasty back and forth funk jam before going into Moon Age Daydream. So basically, they played the longest, most interesting Mercury to date and slamming into a David Bowie cover. So, uh, yeah, not much not to like about that. It's one of my favorite moments. It's one of my favorite moments of the entire fall tour. I absolutely, and probably one of my favorite moments of the oh, entire yeah. year. It's unbelievable. Um, you like the first time you hear it, you're kind of like, holy crap, how did they find Moon Age Daydream? And then you listen to it again. And once again, you're like, how the hell did they find it? Like, it's so unexpected. And it kind of like toes that line between like, where does Mercury end and Moon Age Daydream begin? But somehow they make it perfect. Yeah, it was extremely good. So, Show by show, getting back to Nashville 1, which was the first of five shows, had the uh, Tweezer Reprise opener, first one since uh, June 19th, 2010. And I thought it was a good first set. Average good first set, kind of, I think I called it a, a good barbecue set. It had a yeah. nice bust out and cool it down. Old home place gives you some uh, Nashville pick and bluegrass. Free... You know, just good variety. Put it on. Don't have to think too hard about it. Drink your IPA. Flip your burgers. It's good. 
Yeah, it's just the kind of fish like you want to put on. You're absolutely right. Like summertime barbecue fish when you want to listen to fish, but you may not have fish friends over. So you can't go too deep, but you can play something that like everybody's just going to feel good to. And I, I think that those kind of first sets, um, they tend to pretend to, to really good things um, when, when it ultimately comes down to it. Um, set two, however, it's a complete masterpiece. Um, I, I think it's... a immediately up there is one of the best second sets of 3.0 um, i think it's my favorite second set since holes knife from baker's dozen i really do yeah i mean i would not disagree with that i think um i was tapping my foot against on my couch against the table just saying shit the hell is this son what are you doing? It was relentless yeah. i uh <laughs> I was listening to that while watching the World Series, while editing a Beyond the Pond episode, our previous episode, and I think I texted you and I was like, "This is literally my happy place," and it was it was a good spot to be in. Um, but yeah, I think you're right. That whole set, I think you and I are both on the same page of that being one of the most high quality sets of 3.0 and just airtight. And this was very similar. And I know. Some people have told me, they'll say, like, you know, you really think that's better than set two of uh, Dick's Night One in 2017? And I'd say yes, only because a show like um, set set two, or did I say set one? I meant set two, whatever. Like set two of um, Dick's Friday 2017, you know, that's a fantastic set. That's kind of like really well-played versions of, like, heavy hitters that are big in the rotation. You know, like, Big Carini, Big Ghost, Big Light. There was light in that set, right? Yeah, it was... Uh, no, no, it was, uh, no. was Nomen, Carini, Ghost, Hood, Cavern. Oh, okay. Right, yeah, just, like, really excellently played versions of pretty common set two heavy hitters, whereas this set i mean first of all half of it was new stuff with everything's right and that uh, like set your soul free and then mike's was out of nowhere and the ghost jam was out of nowhere like it was just it was incredibly well done and well segued out of nowhere which is kind of why i give it the nod over something like um that dick set yeah i mean i think it has a parallel to whole i mean first and foremost the fact that it's a complete mike's groove with pretty much everything jamming um, the same as holes. Um, I would say the other comparison I made in the moment, and I still think holds up. I, I think it's a little bit closer to this in, in, in a slight sense than than holes, just because holes was a bit top heavy with that big mics. But um, powder night, where you've got a yeah. lot of 15, 16, 11, 12 minute jams, where they don't totally go to that next level in the jam. But they don't need to because they find a new song that works perfectly. You know, your Carini, uh, Mr. Completely, your 1999, No Quarter, uh, Character Zero, there's something else. Steam was in there, I'm, I forgot. Like, that set to me, it's they find a segue rather than another jam segment. And that segue works. It's not like a fade down into a ballad. Um, right. But... Anyway, this, this second set reads Mike's into Ghost and Everything's Right and to Set Your Soul Free and When the Circus Comes in a Week of Pog. Just airtight, fantastic stuff. Definitely, definitely encourage all of you to uh, to listen to this. And um, I was not at Holes. I was at Dick's Night 1 2017. 
And uh, I think I would agree with you, Dave. I think I would. And uh, the week of Pog had third stone from the sun tweet uh, teases. I did. Jimi Hendrix. Throwing everybody instrumental. off. Hmm? Throwing everybody <laughs> off, yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so jumping in the next night, Nashville night two, we got a Soul Planet opener. Uh, only Soul Planet of the tour so far. Uh, really great extended jam right out the gate. Something that the band would reprise this type of sentiment uh, a couple nights later in Chicago. Um, but, you know, it really ties into the idea that first sets are no longer non-jamming sets. And I like that. No matter what songs they play, if they're going to open up with a song like Soul Planet, you're going to get a jam out of it. Um 2001 appeared its earliest appearance in a show since it opened September 22nd, 1999, right around Roswell, New Mexico and area 51 and all the craziness down in that part of the world, really fitting opener for that show. Um, set one felt a, fell a bit flat from there to me. It was a lot of ballads, some filler tunes. Um, I will agree with you. I thought farmhouse and waste were really pretty, even though I think that they were, I don't know if the placement... Yeah, you don't ever want to see Farmhouse Halfway to the Moon Waste. Right, it's just kind of a run of songs that you're like, okay, like, and we could go on about this. I mean, I think you and I are very open to Fish set list decisions, and there's a lot of times where, like, I'll go back and I'll listen to a set and be like, you know, my initial impression of that was wrong, um, or vice versa. Um, And I know we've talked a lot about, like, the breakdown of fish shows into quarters uh during this tour i just think you know you got people who are very energized coming in from a previous night's masterful performance maybe the band needed a breather i don't know i mean they hadn't played a ton of ballads this tour but it just felt like overkill to a certain degree but the bathtub gin it's awesome it closes that set really awesome that's fantastic ADD tray bathtub gin. I think you might modulate and change keys about four or five times. Yeah, it's 18 minutes. Got a really fascinating midsection and definitely the loosest bathtub gin since um, August 7th, 2009 at the Gorge. One of the best early 3.0 jams. Um, you know, there was a lot mentioned about, uh, and rightly so, the lock in performance from 2016. Magna Ball and um, the 12-30-15 performance. I thought that this one kind of felt a little looser, a little bit more like a 2.0 jam. Um, I really, really liked it. I loved how it just kind of flowed together. Yeah, it doesn't sound much like the bathtub gin from 12-30-15. That's like the Kraut Rocky one that kind of sounds like Wilco Spiders. Yeah. Second set, kind of attempted to go where the previous night set went, but could, couldn't really quite get there even though I thought it was a really good and solid attempt. Um, I need to still go back and re-listen to this set. Um, I think I was pretty tired when it was happening, and I don't know if it immediately satisfied my ears, but um, Down With Disease had a really great segment before I felt like it was cut short and cross-eyed, and that was kind of the theme of the set. It felt like they'd get into a good jam segment and not really have the energy or desire to push on to that next step, um, which we've seen a lot on this tour is them you know, reaching a segment of a jam and then saying, okay, what's next? And someone comes in with a riff and they follow that for four or five more minutes. I like this set. It was kind of like loose dance party USA set. I mean, no man, no man's okay. land, 
Boogie on Reggae Woman, Cross-Eyed had some really, Mike laid the shit down hard in Cross-Eyed. Like that actually had some he did. You about that. excellent, excellent jams in there. Uh, Sets and Subtle Sounds is fun, even though Trey murders the intro, like leaves blood, yeah. <laughs> leaves blood on the stage. I don't know why it's so hard for him to play that out of a segue, but it is. But, you know, it had like the party time and run through the jungle CCR teases. Almost like a CCR jam. Yeah, it was a really bizarre moment and, you know, kind of one of those just weirdly fishy things where they're playing one thing and then you get them playing like a totally familiar song that has, to that point, no fit in that song whatsoever. And somehow it just works. I don't know how they do it, but they uh, they have just jukebox ears sometimes that I absolutely love. Antelope Encore, very good Harry Hood to close out. No worse than the B+. I think I need to go back and re-listen to it because you might be turning my head a little bit more and I might just have needed some caffeine to listen to this set. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. That, I mean, all told, Nashville 1, Nashville 2, very good shows, excellent back-to-back. Solid run. Um, I think Nashville 1, along with the show we're about to talk to, um, are really in the running for best shows of the tour and some of the best shows of the year. And I think, yes. you know, come mid-November, December, January, February, March, when we're waiting around for summer tour, these are the kind of shows that people are going to be talking about on Twitter, on Fantasy Tour, on Fish.net. Um, they're the shows that you're going to put on in your car when you're taking a long drive. You know, these are the kind of stuff that you want the band to play now to get you through to the next tour. Is Chicago is not Chicago. Chicago night one. Arguably the best show of the tour. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I would say this and Nashville one are the uh, are the two top tier shows. And this kicks off with a killer punch in the eye opener. Um, if you watch the webcast video, um, Trey comes out on stage and has some issues with his guitar. And uh, his guitar tech has to come out to... Um, help him out, help him sort things out before he starts it. But everyone had already heard the muted, and uh, it was pretty pretty clear that they were about to open up with punch. So the energy in the room was pretty high. Trey raises the devil horns, and um, off they go. And he really shows from the onset just some serious love for his guitar. The intro to this song is fantastic. Yeah, it was one of the better played punch in the eyes of 3.0. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. 1.0 quality in terms of the tempo, in terms of the playing, really tight. Yeah, and then Martian Monster uh, kicks off the second song of the show. Um, some actual attempt at kind of fucking around with the tune and with the intro. I thought it was a little sloppy. It didn't come off very well, but I think it was a novel attempt. Uh, really, really lovely Reba. And then uh, there was an Axilla in there, which was really great. But Mercury, man. That's uh, we've talked we talked about it at the top of the show, but that is that is the version that we've been waiting for from that song. Yeah, I mean, even on on paper, you're not going to complain about a set that goes punch in the eye, Martian Monster, Axel Reba, then my sweet one, right. Mercury, Moon Age, Daydream, Walls of the Cave. That's just a primo set from start to finish, on paper and in actuality. Absolutely, and then. Set two kicks off with what I'm thinking is probably the best tweezer since January 2nd, 2016 from the Garden. When it hits the Bliss Jam, it flows like water. 
It's just very smooth, very melodic. It practically sounds composed. And then they jump into the party time style jam that actually ended up surfacing uh, in some other songs this weekend as well. Yeah, you know, I saw that that float around that this was the best tweezer since January 2nd, 2016. Initially, I couldn't believe it. And I was going through tweezers over the last two years. And um, there hasn't been a really standout version of tweezer uh, in a long, long time. It's kind of a, it's kind of crying. The Baker's version for night one is fine, but unremarkable. Um, Yeah. One that came really early on 123017 is good for a first set tweezer very good not as good as this one yeah yeah i agree and, and I was going through, summer... yeah, there's two in 2017 and this summer had um oh they play it once this summer twice yeah, i'm trying to think because i don't think that they play oh they played it at the gorge and it wasn't very good Right, and then they played it in Atlanta, and it was quite good. They opened up night one, set two in Atlanta. Oh yes, yes, that's right. But still, it didn't kind of hit the levels that this one did. And then it got played in the first set at Meriwether night two. It was good, but it was a first set version. And then it got played in the second set of Dick's night three, and it was good, but it was kind of in that like sandwich. It wasn't like its own thing. It was, you know, it was. It was a, a part of a larger musical journey. So, if I can't yeah. recall that it was played, it wasn't that good. <laughs> well, and that's the thing with tweezers; it either dominates the show or it doesn't. Right. And if it doesn't, it's pretty telling. So, I thought this was fantastic. Yeah, the full-on party time jam. It never became party time. I love that. Um, and then Golden Age. Uh, hangs around in Golden Age territory. You know, something I've always liked about Golden Age, at least as of recent, is how it gets outside of itself and the jams it leads to. I mean, you think about the Hampton version in particular that we just talked about in last week's episode. But um, this just never leaves a key of C. It just gets ridiculously syncopated and funky, and there's no complaining for me. It kind of reminded me, in a sense, to the um, uh, version from... Uh, uh, 7, 18, 14, night one at Northerly Island, oddly enough in Chicago, again, just a 17-minute version that, like, sounds like Golden Age the whole time, but just is, like, a groovy dance fest, so um Frost, I thought was a good pick for the ballad spot, it was a little bit unexpected kind of keeps you on your toes, you know, you never want to hear the traditional ballads thrown into that spot that tends to kill the energy a little bit more so when you hear a song they haven't played that often, that was really pretty. Um, I think Tom Marshall has said that it's kind of the companion piece to Winter Queen. I thought it was I thought it was good there. Then you got a version of Sand in which Trey's uses his guitar like a chainsaw to kill small woodland animals. I think that's what I said on Twitter. It was <laughs> very fast, very upbeat. And while it stayed in sand territory, Trey was a man on a mission. It was just... Yeah. He could cut glass with his guitar riffs on that song. And A Day in the Life, which when they aren't playing it every other night like they did in 1995, is pretty great to hear. And then A Good Possum. Yeah. Great great string of possums on this tour. They're doing a good job with possum. Great set. No lulls. 
probably maybe the best first set of the tour. You know, I mean, certainly, I guess Hampton Night Three with the simple you could argue is up there as well. But and then uh, Wilson Tweezer Reprise Encore. But I think top to bottom, this is this is my favorite show of the tour so far. Notable that Wilson Tweezer Reprise pairing is the first since July fifteenth, ninety eight, which is just weird to think that. I mean, Wilson appears in the encore slot rarely, but it has more often in the last couple of years. Tweezer Reprise is obviously. You know, typically an encore song, um, but yeah, really good to hear those two songs. Just a ton of energy in that rock show coming out of Friday night, like a true Friday night rock show. Friday is the new Sunday. Is what they're saying. That's what they're saying. Um, transitioning here to Saturday night, night two in Chicago, starts out really promising with the first stash opener since July 22nd, 2015. Good quality version of stash. I like when that opens a show rather than appears midway through this uh, first set in a predictable fashion. Um, the Dogs, and then a near 15-minute Bliss Jam out of Blazon, which... Awesome, awesome version. I feel like it's been overshadowed for a lot of different things that happened in Chicago over the weekend. That is one of the best jams of the tour. Um, I don't know if it's one of the most interesting jams. It's just really satisfying. And it's just so... It's unbelievable how quickly they can get out of their songs right now and into a really captivating segment of music. And, you know, do not take this for granted. This is something that happens when the band is incredibly well-practiced, feeling really good about whatever they're going to play for Halloween... Um, you know, and, and in a position where they're like, we're hearing exactly what the other person's, what their direction is, what they're looking for. I mean, that, that part of the, of the band, you know, when they're playing at this level, you get jams like blaze on that just like happen out of nowhere. Yeah. And the rest of the set fine, well-played, a very big energy peak during roses are free. Um, Trey keeps doing lots of vocal ad-libs during Blaze On and Yamar, because as you'll note, he's trying to sing in this tour. He's really uh, putting some big emphasis on the vocals. And uh, yeah, 46 Days, actually not a particularly notable one. They've been a little better as of late. And then a really good Bowie. Good, uh, excellent 3.0 Bowie. Yeah, for a song that I think it's... I compare it to Antelope in terms of we used to love this song. <laughs> you know, we used to love playing David Bowie. And now it usually just gets kind of like the run through without any hint of a jam. This was definitely a more interesting version. Um, second set is going to be remembered for the epic No Man in No Man's Land. And it rightly should be. This went into a bliss jam before turning in on itself and becoming one of the most psychedelic journeys the band has taken this year. The longest jam of the year, and one of the best, com- complete with a butter segue into Steam. Yeah, and then from there, you had a pretty good, compact, upbeat Choctaw's Torture, we left seven minutes, but I mean, seven and a half minute Choctaw's Torture, Go Nowhere Fuego, Joy, Susie, kind of fourth quarter kind of died yeah it's you know their their tendency to and so it's a tough it's a tough ask like do we not want them to play their their songs that like they love and like have led them to this point no that's not what we're saying no 
I think it's you know we like fish songs. We are fish I love fans. fish songs. I loved I loved 2013 New Year's Run when the whole focus was their song. Um, you know I've seen Susie Greenberg before in in a lot of different shows. I mean it's a it's a regularly played show or regularly played performance. I mean just recently I saw it at the Forum. It was the second song of the night, and it's really amazing how when you hear that song in an unexpected place closing down set one opening set one um you know man try to play that around like an early part of set two and see what you guys can do with it i mean that's a song that used to jam like crazy let's look at 2.0 um i want to hear them play these songs i just don't want that predictable like oh fuego starting and we know exactly where the set's going and unfortunately, more often than not, I mean, we've talked about the low, low batting average for the song Fuego. Fortunately, more often than not, when that song starts up, we know exactly where the show is about to go. Right. Although, um, what they recently played it, was it one of the Hampton shows where Fuego was the second song in the first set? Exactly to my point. The idea of it being in right. that spot, it doesn't have to do that. That was great. It's a great show opener. Look at 11-1-2014 when they opened up with it a year after Halloween 2014. And just think about, like, the energy of the big rock peak in that song is so much more earned when it happens earlier in the show. And there's kind of this unexpected nature to it. So, you know, I'm just I'm always an advocate for screwing around with the set list. And, you know, the last thing you want is when you're watching them on the webcast and you hear the jam kind of end and you see Trey look at the song list rather than try to continue a song because you just know at that point they're just kind of like throwing things against the wall and seeing what sticks and while that's while it's not realistic that you're ever going to hear them consistently play something like Nashville Night One I mean that just it's a special show for a reason Um, you know you just don't want it to fall into too much normalcy also, just uh, the encore at the Chicago Night 2 show, Velvet Underground's Rock and Roll. Lou Reed died five years earlier to that date. So I think uh, although rock and roll is not an uncommon encore for a Saturday Night Rock show, um, I'd like to think that they were date conscious about that pick. Because it opened, it opened the Hartford show when he died back on October 27, 2013. That I was at. Right. Um, so final show, final pre Halloween show, Chicago night three, uh, Sunday, October 28th, the last true Sunday show until summer 2019. Now, yes, we know December 30th, 2018 does fall on a Sunday, but they'll have a new year's Eve show the next day. And part of the charm about a Sunday show is having no show the next day, meaning the weekend is complete and the band knows or at least is supposed to know that they're playing for hardcore fans. Right. Uh, this year, and as we'll get into here, it seems like we've only really had one true Sunday-esque show. That was Gorge Night Flea, which is one of my favorite shows of the whole year. Um, Alpharetta 3, Merriweather 3 kind of flirted with it, but their second sets were huge drop-offs. And Dick's Night 3 had kind of a very much of a, huh, set one. Uh, followed by a really great third quarter and uh, kind of exactly what we were just talking about with Chicago Night 2 type of fourth quarter that just kind of felt like one expected song after another. So a lot of 
anticipation going into the show. Obviously, if you look in recent years, you know, the Bill Graham shows from 2014, the Reading show from 2013, the 1030 2010 show from Atlantic City. I mean, there's been some really great night before Halloween shows that people were not in the wrong to expect, you know, great things out of the show. Um, it opened with yet another blissful and inspired take on Everything's Right, a jam that was somewhat more to the blaze on. Um, this is the song that keeps on giving. It works similarly to the Soul Planet opener from Nashville, where the band jams a newer song with limited restraint, resulting in just an above-average opener. I would take that any day. Yeah, that's uh, certainly Everything's Right has become a very reliable jam vehicle. And... I don't need fish to get political. I wouldn't expect it, but with everything's right is such a everything's right. So long as you still go out and vote, right, 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 yeah. It's a little. I don't know. I think um, like Rob Mitchin kind of touched upon this in his review of Fishnet of this night, but it was a pretty uh, somewhat awful weekend of things going on in America. And to hear fish just say everything's right, I want to say. Not really, but I'll let it slide because you're fish. Yeah, I had a lot of conversations with people in the early summer as Soul Planet kept making its rounds, and I was like, we're not all really living on the Soul Planet. Like, the song doesn't actually live in any semblance of reality. And, you know, it's a tough thing. Like, obviously, songs like More, um, you know, touch upon semi-political themes. Um you know, I don't necessarily go to fish for politics. I listen to a lot of political music. I go to fish right. typically as escapism. Um, and because musically, I've never found another band that can take all the different styles of music that I absolutely love and amalgamate them in really fascinating ways. And I just quite genuinely love the dudes in the band and want to continue hanging out with them, you know, a couple nights a year, every year. Um, and as well as all my friends I've met, you know, it's just a great atmosphere, but, um, I do appreciate them starting to comment on politics in ways that they didn't during their heyday at all. They kind of were a a political band, but yeah, I'm right there with you, man. I mean, the idea of, I, I, I just get, I feel a little messy inside. Um, you know, belting out uh, everything's, everything's right. right. Just so tight. When I know that that's not it. I don't want to make. I don't want people to get lazy because of it. It is yeah. great. It is great idealism, though. I think that that's that's where I found the comfort level is that what Trey is singing about is this ideal world, and you know, at their best, Fish does inspire and create that, even if it's imperfect. Right, and I appreciate their politics you know certainly via their contributions to uh, like Waterwheel Foundation and I know absolutely like I think John Fishman has some sort of town council thing in his hometown and his politics are very liberal which I can appreciate so yeah you know like you I definitely go to fish for escapism as a way to get out of my own head and have a fantastic time but don't want them to, uh, you know, really overshadow the fact that everything's not entirely right. So get to the ballot box on November 6th. Fucking do something about it. Right. 
Right, right. And then we could we could sing that song realistically. Yeah. Um, and that ends the political part of the podcast. <laughs> <All right. laughs> getting back to uh, <laughs> getting back to the show. So Destiny Unbound, nobody's ever going to complain about that in the two hole. Uh, great spot for it. Kept the it's energy funk. going. Uh, good funk in the middle there. Um, good energy out of the gates. This ended with Heavy Things and Miss You. Two really good ballads. Not the right moment for them, it felt like. Um, I thought the Miss You was gorgeous. And I've really been been impressed by that song ever since Bob Weir sang the lyrics. And I heard Trey's um, guitar in the song. And I heard the meaning behind the song in a very different way. You're smiling at me from your picture frame. And I miss you. I like how in like heavy things, if you pay attention, you can kind of hear the really high-pitched note. And that gives yeah. you like an extra 20 seconds. Like that's the extra, I call that the courtesy note is that gives you an extra 20 <laughs> seconds to run to the bathroom before the song starts. You can get the jump with everybody. Get get in front of the line, and then you're back for the organ solo. Um, exactly. Tube jammed for a 12-minute version, uh, reminding everyone how spectacular this song is when they really put everything that they have into it. And it's, it's just pretty amazing to me that, you know, four or five years ago, the notion of them ever jamming tube again i mean it's always been welcome but you know it was welcome for like these 30 second page clav solos that people were like oh my i mean there's a great twitter account dude they jam did they did they jam out tube and i'll never forget on july 23rd 2016 in chula vista when they finally again did jam out tube that site like show. blew up <laughs> it was and that's a great show yeah um Really reliable first set jam vehicle here. Would love to see what they could do with Tube if they decided at some point here to play it in the second set. But very interesting version. Um, very patient, very textural. Um, Petrichor, very beautiful. Very out of place, though, I felt. Um, I know that you and I text a lot about that song. I've, I started out not liking it, and I did not like it being the center of the 2016 New Year's Eve gag. But it's grown on me, um, and uh, I, I enjoy. I it. like Petrichor. I, th- I think it's a throwback to like divided sky, yam type junta era epics. Maybe uh, a little more elegant, not quite as ragged. I'd love to see it in the encore slot one day. I'd be a great, be a fantastic. I like that. Be, really good encore. I um I like it a lot more than Time Turns Elastic and what they were doing with that. Oh yeah. I can never get past the um, the like that segment and like the like the the something will come and the seas will rise. Like it sounds like relations. Yes, it sounds like <laughs> Trey has written like some small musical part to a Broadway production of the Book of Revelations, and I hate it. Like with every inch of my body like when that part comes on and the way that they choreograph the dancing like it it just sounds like a bad joke on me <laughs> just I, oh way to put it that way <laughs> i hate it so much it is uh like but once they get past that once they like moved into like the the very end the like the and the rain segment and then the ending jam i'm locked in and i'm just like I feel it, it feels very organic. It feels very 
uh, natural like that. I love that part of the song, but the the part that precedes that, like, just physically makes me angry. On the Jewish holiday of Passover, we always celebrate the Seder, the uh, the ten plagues, ten plagues that um, God sent to torment Pharaoh in the land of Egypt. One of those plagues is uh, is locusts, which they call moraine. I think that's the Hebrew term for it. So I always sing, and moraine, and moraine came down. And that makes Petrichor like a Passover song. So, you know. I like that. Um, so. By the time they cranked up, I always wanted this way. It felt a little odd at that point, though, just kind of with the ups and downs of the set. Um, one quick note, I saw I saw a Twitter post um, from What's Next, uh, a great follow on Twitter, who right when the song started said, Fish fans are not going to embarrass themselves by proving that they don't actually know what EDM is. Because everyone calls, I always wanted it this way, Paige's EDM song. And um, there's nothing close to EDM in that song. I don't know what anybody's talking about. It's more like indie techno, um, if anything. But uh, it was a great version. It rocked. I, uh, I definitely hope that they build on that. I'm still waiting for my first version of that song. I'm hoping that they build on that in like night three or four in Vegas. They played that at um, the version from December 29, 2017 was very good. That mm-hmm, was in the Seven mm-hmm, Drops mm-hmm. of Torture, I think. Um, Grind finishes the set. Page crosses 20,000 days. It's the first version that they played in two years. And so I think he was at like 20,100 days, something around that area. So pretty cool to see that. They're getting old. It's it's wild to hear them all because you can listen to versions from early 3.0 where they're at like 16, 17,000 days. And it's just fucking wild to think about where they are now. Um, set two was a bit of a mess. Uh, Karini never fully lifted off and kind of faded the first chance it had into no quarter. And then no quarter actually jammed. It was crazy. It was kind of like the evil dark version of the show of life jam from Albany. Yeah, yeah, I can hear that. Yeah, sort of kind of just taking themes from the song and developing them into like a more fluid thoroughfare out of the song into cities yeah and um rob mitchum again did mention he's gonna get a couple shout outs in this episode rob if you're listening um you're welcome on here as well anytime uh he and stephen hyden former guests on the on the podcast great writer were laughing like crazy um when they went from no quarter into cities because no band should ever be able to seamlessly mash those songs together except for fish it's just like one of the great like unique levelers of fish's music and fish's personas that they can take the most bombastic arena rock over the top uh uh music um and 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 mash it with like this very deft danceable rhythmic weirdly urban 80s very american music and the talking heads um just totally bizarre but somehow it fucking worked it's amazing how they do this and then another late set two got a jaboo good version of the song fun but kind of its own self-contained universe 
Yeah, I don't really understand the placement of it in this slot. Um, I don't like it. <laughs> I like, and I like God of Jabu. I wish it would be showcased in a different place. It just, if, if they're not going to do anything with the song. Set two just, opener. Uh, That's where you want your fucking Jabu. The set two yeah, opener. Yeah, set two opener, like mid set one, like for like a big peaking jam. I mean, like, it, it, if you're literally just going to play nine minutes of that, it's Mike's not doing anything. It's just Trey building a theme and. It's great, but like I don't think it's. I just don't think it fits there. Um, Twist got back to interesting jamming territory before it was cut off for what's the use. Always beautiful, definitely a bit overplayed at this point in time. But uh, I like the way that it was paired as like a sandwich. Um, Twist came back out of it, um, and then they played Shade, which is a pretty song, but again a theme of the show right here. <laughs> uh, um, I don't totally know why they uh, they threw that out then and there, but uh, they did, and um, I don't know if it worked. Then plasma, because why not? Plasma rules, right? It's a good song, <laughs> really good song. I like the song, and um, this I think was the probably probably the best version that the band has ever played. I mean, I think Trey's played better versions with tab but i think this was the best version that uh fish has ever played at plasma well yeah this is again with like the party time plasma yeah this is, yeah, this yeah. is the third time you're seeing the, the party time jam they did the party time here they did have tweezer um and then what was sense and subtle sounds party time jam right yeah yes right nashville right okay anyway character zero Good character zero, very good version of that song, and then a fluff hit encore, which um, you're not going to complain about fluff hit in the encore slot. This one was kind of flubby. Um, this was a wild card set to me. It seemed like the band never figured out what they wanted to do, kept throwing stuff at the wall, and they almost seemed a bit tired at times. Which, considering they're all in their early to mid fifties, third night on a Sunday, I guess they're entitled to be a little bit yeah 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 totally it's you know we've seen some really big shows right before halloween we also saw uh 10 25 16 the last show before the vegas run was one of the worst shows of that tour and of that year and evolved 3.0 man we just keep yeah. kicking we just keep kicking the dallas show it's yeah just, it deserves it that's a really bad show kicking it <laughs> It's like that Simpsons where Homer's beating up like the crusty burglar and the kid's like, stop, he's already dead. (laughs) (laughs) Dallas night two. So just kind of quickly, where do you feel the band is going into Vegas? Do you think that we're in a good place? Do you think that we've got a good run ahead of us? What, What are your thoughts? They are in a good place because they always bring it in Vegas. They love the city. They rise to the occasion. And the two best shows, I think the two best shows of 2018 were just played, being Nashville Night One and Chicago Night One. So they've been pressing forward. Those shoes are, uh, those two shows are definitely a bit of a breakthrough. And I think... Um, it pretends very well. They're going to leave it all out on the floor because after this, there's no shows until holiday run. So right. they got plenty of time to sleep. Plus, having Halloween be the first show of the run, um, I think that's a good thing. 
kind of gets the jitters out. Whatever they're working on, they're working their asses off of. And, um, you know, the cool thing about this, we saw it in 2013, and then we saw it again in 2014. Um, you get this big holiday show out of the way, three-setter. Got to perform this musical co- um, this musical costume. So that kind of takes precedence over the um, the first and third sets of the show. Um, and then they come out for 11-1. And usually that's one of the more inspired shows of the year because you hear the immediate sonic effects of the, sh- of the album that they just played. And um, so we'll see what they've got going for us but i'm i'm heading to vegas here the morning of halloween and i uh i think i agree with you i think we're in for a good weekend also just briefly i misspoke earlier moraine is not locusts it's cattle disease that's when you see the little upside down cow in uh, your passover book so that's what moraine is on that note let, we do our fact checking yeah. around here at Beyond the Pond on site. Uh, we are, you know, just just take note of that. We are we are fact checking in the moment. Yes, we do the fact checking in your Passover Haggadah. Lorraine is the <laughs> little upside down cow staring at the sky because it's dead. Because you know, Pharaoh got punished. All the fucking cattle died. That was food. Anyway, on that note. Let us listen to uh, three to five segments of the Mike song from Nashville, Tennessee.
right, guys. I hope that you enjoyed that segment of the Mike's Song Jam from October 24th, 2018, the Ascend Amphitheater in downtown Nashville. So when we were breaking down how to structure this show, we decided, you know what? Nashville and Chicago are two of our favorite cities. Let's pick out some ways to celebrate these cities. So we're giving you a couple artists from each city in each segment. First up is Nashville, the best three-day weekend city in America. Because it is. You can get yourself a fantastic Airbnb in East Nashville. And for three evenings, I mean, there's food, there's music. Nothing is more than like a seven-minute Uber ride away from anything else. I've been there four times, and I can't wait to go back. There's great parks. There's great new restaurants. We'll give our plug once again for the Butcher and the Bee mm. in Nashville. Um, Husk. Go to Arnold's for bre- for breakfast one day, breakfast, lunch. City House. Um, tree uh, Tree House. I mean, there's great, great spots. Urban Cowboy. If you guys need Nashville recommendations, you come to the right podcast. But going on, um, the band I'm going to talk about is one of my favorite bands of all time, the Silver Jews. Uh, I'm going to talk about their album, Bright Flight, and the song, Tennessee. So we covered the Silver Jews in episode 14 on the Dick's 46 Days from 2017. And I played the song Suffering Jukebox, the song that gave me my Twitter handle. And uh, I, I, I would ask you if you have never heard of them or if this segment or the song that we're going to play here interests you at all in them, um, please check out that episode for a, more, for a fuller history of the band. Kind of in short, the Silver Jews are this sometimes regarded side project of Stephen Malcolmus right after Pavements or during Pavements concluding years. Um, David Berman is the... Uh, lead singer songwriter and the consistent member in the group from its onset to its uh, demise in 2009. And while many people would claim that their 1988 record American water is their seminal piece, I am always drawn to the 2000 al- 2001 album bright flight, which was recorded just outside of Nashville. Um, this is a tragically hilarious record. It's up there with the best bill Hicks jokes It's a love story in the saddest sense with David Berman's remarkably unremarkable observations on the world around him in the hippies in the hippest and most 90s stoner-esque passages of banal suffering that there is. I love this record and it carried me through a somewhat dark and love lost moment in my life and uh, stays with me to this day. This was recorded right after Berman relocated from New York City to Nashville And there's this late night tragic looseness to the record, not unlike one of our favorite records, Tonight's the Night. Uh, Standout tracks on this album, Slow Education, The Opener, Room Games and Diamond Rain, Time Will Break the World, I Remember Me, Tennessee, Friday Night Fever, Album Closer, Death of an Heir of Sorrow. This is an incredible record that you should hear immediately. And that really showcases the humanity of David Berman before he dived deep into alcohol, alcoholism and depression and attempted suicide. Um, of note, Cassie Merritt, who would later marry David, 
plays the Emmy Lou to his Bob Dylan, backing him up effortlessly throughout the album and providing one of the best bits of call and response in the, in the album in the song Tennessee, which has the brilliant chorus of marry me, leave Kentucky, come to Tennessee, because you're the only 10 I see. So really great stuff here from Berman and the Silver Jews. And we're going to go ahead and play Tennessee off of Bright Flight. I saw the river playing in the valley Rushing round a bend and skipping stones I saw the meadow wobble in the moonlight I've come to get my girl and take her home Her doorbell plays a bar of Stephen Foster Her sister never left and look what it cost her We're gonna live in Nashville And I'll make a career Out of writing sad songs And getting paid by the tear Marry me and leave Kentucky Come to Tennessee You're the only Tennessee you're the only ten I see I've looked through offices and honky-tonks For man man enough to be Punk rock died when the first kid said Punk's not dead Punk's not dead All right. You know Louisville is dead I love the Silver Jews. Thank you for uh, playing that song, Brian. So what I've got here in terms of Nashville, this one's a layup. I mean, we here at Beyond the Pond have, uh, I think we've talked about and have professed our love for Jason Isbell and the 400 unit many times in the past. And he, I think last week, just put out a live record. Not any live record. This was live at the Ryman Auditorium. And the Ryman Auditorium, or as they often call it, the Mother Church of Country Music, is located right in downtown Nashville. It's a very unique venue in the sense that instead of um, actual chairs, there's basically church pews, there is uh, stained glass windows, and I've been there twice. I think it easily has the best acoustics of any concert hall that I've been to, and it's just been the site of numerous seminal country concerts and rock shows, and what 
Jason Isbell did last year was, I believe, in October of 2017. He did a five or six night run at the Ryman, which sold out, almost sold out instantly. I think uh, the encore for each of those nights was a different Tom Petty song, none of which make it onto the live album, probably because it would have cost him a significant amount of money for him to do that. But yeah, the album Live at the Ryman, it's a very good showcase of uh, his records for the past three years. Goes pretty heavily on his last two albums, being uh, the Nashville Sound and Something More Than Free. Has a, I think it has two songs off of his uh, classic Southeastern record. I actually think it sounds pretty good. Some people have complained that with the production and mixing, the rhythm section gets short shrift and pointed out that sometimes the drums don't sound quite as crisp as they should be. To which I would say on um, the harder rocking songs like Cumberland Gap, Flying Over Water, and Super 8, when the drummer hits hard, you feel it more. But generally, his drummer tends to lay back, which I think is why when um, the producer Dave Cobb produced the record and mixed it, it doesn't um, even quite put as much emphasis on the snare drum. But Jason Isbell remains one of the uh, greatest Americana rock and roll songwriters of his generation. This is a really good showcase, almost like a victory lap uh, for his recent work. So, yeah, check out Jason Isbell live from the Ryman. And if you happen to be in Nashville, you should absolutely go see something at the Ryman. I know um, they give tours often in the winter and fall. The Grand Ole Opry relocates from Opryland to the Ryman Auditorium. And those shows are always, always a heck of a lot of fun. So, Recommend the city, recommend the venue, and I think the song we're going to play from this is the opening track, Hope the High Road. I used to think that this was my town, what a stupid thing to think. I hear you fighting off a breakdown, I myself am on the brain. I used to want to be a real man, I don't know what that even means. Now I just want you in my arms again, and we can search each other's dreams. I know you're tired and you ain't sleeping well Uninspired and likely mad as hell But wherever you are, I hope the high road leads you home again I heard enough of the white man's blues I sang enough about myself So if you're looking for some bad news We can find it somewhere else Year was a son of a bitch, for nearly everyone we know. Fight, fighting with you down in the ditch. I'll meet you up here on the road. I know you're tired and you ain't sleeping well. Uninspired, likely mad as hell. But wherever you guys hope you enjoyed our first segment there moving into a quick break for new album recommendations so the record i'm going to recommend is a band by an artist i guess i should say that i think you guys would expect that we love i know that a lot of you guys love him but i think it's really notable to uh recognize this new record that came out and i'll explain why 
Um, Kurt Vile, Bottle of Din. So this is the eighth record from Kurt Vile, the Philadelphia singer, songwriter, and guitar extraordinaire. And I would argue, I think Dave would agree to a certain extent with me on this. I think this is, um, well, I think first and foremost, that's a companion piece to 2013's Walking on the Pretty Days, probably his most focused record since 2011's Smoke Ring, Smoke Ring for My Halo. Um, I would say it's best since Walking on the Pretty Days, uh, Waking on the Pretty Days. What would you say, Dave? I think that you're more... Um, uh, I've been thinking it's his best in Smoke Ring for My Halo. I think it's great. It's... Uh... The most I've enjoyed it, most I've enjoyed a Kurt Vile record in some time, was because I was, I didn't, I don't know why I didn't really like believe I'm going down. It wasn't for lack of trying. It's just for some reason that's the one record in his discography that never clicked with me like the others did. Same here, and I really didn't like his record with Courtney Barnett. Oh, that's um, that's weird. Like you and I differ. I fucking love that record. Do you really? Yeah, I think that was great. I was not, I was not very much into it, um, but yeah, I believe I'm going down. I, uh, I, it never clicked for me, and I had kind of, well, I'll talk about it here in a second. But I mean, just with the rise of the Philadelphia rock scene, I'd kind of, you know, I, I was still listening to Week, Waking on the Pretty Days here and there, Smoke Ring for My Halo, even Child is Prodigy, not the first record I heard of his, um, but I hadn't really regarded him in as like, you know, the immediate high bar for singer songwriter guitarists and this record just has blown me away over the last couple of weeks so um it's it's filled with multiple seven minute seven plus minute long guitar tracks it's rambling slow driven ramshackled contemplative and introspective throughout it vile loses his train of thought multiple times but rarely if ever wastes a note or phrase um the record was was uh, recorded over a three-year period while vile was on tour throughout america and it feels like drip taken at a proper pace um while his previous two records believe i'm going down and a lot of sea lice seem to rely heavily on this kind of stoner dad shtick that he has uh, to a certain degree this record just feels like sitting down and having an ongoing conversation with kurt and i love that aspect of it um cass mccombs kim gordon and mary Lattimore all contribute to the record and the standout track to me is uh skinny mini it's 10 minutes of psychedelic Mark Knopfler-esque guitar work. It's just fantastic stuff. And, you know, as an artist who helped us in the work of one Adam Grandshield back when he was a session musician touring backup for Vile, it seemed as though to a certain extent, at least from my perspective, that Vile has been a little lost since the war on drugs exploded with Lost in the Dream in 2014 and kind of been passed up by that, you know, just machine of modern rock and roll now. And uh, this feels like Vile's first extended step back into the forefront of the Philly rock scene. Where perhaps I think this might be his most fascinating record ever. It's subtle, it's nuanced, it's um, got bits and pieces of all of his past work, plus kind of the master um, kind of songwriting perspective that you got on Waking on a Pretty Day. So definitely dig Kurt Vile's bottling in. And if you haven't spun it, um, or if you have only listened to it a couple of times, I highly, highly recommend it again. What do you got, Dave? Okay, so the record I'm going to talk about for my new album is uh, the latest release from Cloud Nothings called Last Building Burning. I think I've talked about them on the pod in the past, but the, the last record, Life Without Sounds, actually only came out 18 months ago. It all tends to run together after a while. 
So Cloud Nub Things is basically, um, it's this guy Dylan Baldy. He's the bespectacled main singer, songwriter, and the band. It kind of started as a solo bedroom project, pretty lo-fi, and then it he developed into a full-throated rock band back in 2012, owing a big debt to the uh, Portland early 80s punk rock band Wipers with uh, the Cloud Nothings album Attack on Memory. So they kind of traffic in what I like to call brutal melodic punk. They do sound a lot like Wipers, and they're probably, I think, the closest thing that we have now to uh, the band Husker Du, who I love dearly. So the last record, while rocking, I think he called it New Age Music, by which he just meant it was a somewhat quieter Cloud Nothings album, which still got extremely noisy in the final two tracks. But uh, the new one, Last Building Burning, is a return to uh, the ferocity of Attack on Memory. It's just, it doesn't ever let up over the course of 40 minutes, and it's really... Probably would be closer to a half hour or not for one song that's, I think, about 10 minutes long. He kind of deconstructs a punk rock song, breaks it apart, and builds back up again. It's really cool. And what's good about this band is that his drummer hits the snare drum like it owes him money. They have one of the most hyperactive, precise rhythm sections in rock and roll. And if you want some full-bodied melodic punk rock which is both very catchy and ferocious at the same time and well produced i think you got to check out the latest cloud nothings record and now just getting back to the fish we're going to play a three to five minute segment of the jam from mercury from uh, the first night of the all-state arena in chicago
Alright guys, so moving into segment number two here. So in segment one, we focused on Nashville. Segment two, Chicago, you gave us wings. And Chicago is where the first Mercury Jam happened. And it's where the two bands that we're going to discuss here both grew up and both uh, um, started their careers in. And these are two bands that I've got to imagine there was one night at the Empty Bottle where they both played. Uh, I know that they both frequent that venue. Got to imagine these guys were at some party in Pilsen in like 2014 together. These two artists that we're going to discuss here are about as Chicago as it gets, at least in the modern sense. About as Chicago as a fully dressed Vienna beef dog from Portillo's. As Chicago as buying a sixer from Binnie's. Chicago as Pequod's Pizza. Drinking old style at Wrigley Field. Mm, man, oh man. <laughs> my birth city, it is my favorite city on the planet aside from Tokyo. Um, and uh, if you've never been to Chicago, same with Nashville. Just hit me up. I'd be happy to give you a, a full weekend tour there. Anyway, um, jumping into the music here. So I'm going to feature a band here out of Chicago called Cave. I'm going to play a song here off of their 2011 album, Never Endless, called WUJ, which is the opening track off the album. So Cave is a psychedelic drone rock band from Chicago. They actually did form while they were in college in 2006 at the University of Missouri in Columbia, Missouri. They're known as part of the Columbia diaspora with Mahjong and Laser Crystal. But they relocated to Chicago shortly after college and have been making music there since the late 2000s. Uh, their sophomore record, Psychic Summer, was described by the AV Club as near-perfect. And prior to the release of their third record, Never Endless, they played a show while driving through Chicago on a flatbed truck, which, as Fish fans, we all know and love that sort of sentiment. This record is all about movement, Never Endless. And it really feels throughout like what Fish was going for in the Chicago No Man in No Man's Land. It's easily the band's tightest record, whereas in the past they were very much into their record sounding as loose as possible. Here, they sound premeditated and highly intentional. The result is a grooving noise indie rock record that deserves to be heard by every single Fish fan, similar to our recommendation of The Next back in... Um, uh, I believe that was episode 43 on Dick's Transitions. Uh, just quick side personal note. I saw these guys in 2014 with uh, Rob Mitchum and Joel Burke when they opened for Oneida at the Empty Bottle. And it goes down as one of the coolest things I've ever been a part of. Um, and it was a great show. Um, excellent beer was had that night. A lot of Three Floyds. Um just a ton of fun hanging out in uh, my one of my favorite bars in Chicago, listening to some hard-driving, psychedelic drone rock from just an amazing city. Um, so let's go ahead and listen to WUJ, the opening track off of Cave's uh, 2011 record, Never Endless.
right. So uh, for my Chicago artist, I'm going to talk about a guy who uh, we've certainly mentioned in passing on this podcast before. I know we definitely talked about him in our uh, conversation with Grayson Curran. But surprisingly, I don't think we've ever talked about one of his albums before. And uh, this guy is Riley Walker. The album is called Deaf Men Glance, which came out this year. And the track is called Opposite Middle. Now, I guess I would describe Riley Walker's output, and especially this album, as kind of breezy, psychedelic folk. Um, there's certainly some elements of prog rock within. I know that he's uh, professed a love for things like 80s Genesis. But really, almost kind of what comes to mind is sort of the wistfulness and well-produced acoustics of The Sea and Cake. And in fact, if you had Sam Precop singing vocals over some of these tracks as opposed to Riley Walker, um, you could almost get me to think it'd be um, like a late 90s Sea and Cake record, uh, like We or uh, I think The Fawn from 1997. But yeah, really kind of... um, Riley Walker's voice would sort of be, I would describe as a um, little scratchy, melodic, but almost like end of the rope dirge at times. And this music it kind of switches off between being hopeful, kind of being sad, often uh, serving as good background music. And certainly Death Man Glance is a type of record that um, you kind of put it on the background and then you always like pick your head up to say, Oh, what's going on there? What's going on there? So anyone who's a fan of psychedelic folk music, well-written, I think this is probably uh, his best album to date, but any discussion of Riley Walker, of course, has to um, also focus somewhat on his Twitter feed and uh, his Twitter personality, which I don't think there's anyone in modern indie rock music who's, uh, I guess Twitter persona is more at odds with what their music sounds like because on um, he's a pretty prolific tweeter and his personality is kind of a uh, entitled brat with lots of opinions about music. Some opinions that older people and more stuffy folks who can't take a joke don't like, but um, certainly one of the most important followers on Twitter and while uh also i i have to say an absolutely amazing instagram follow and he recommends some of the shadiest and best looking dive restaurants and dive bars throughout chicago his burritos and omelet selections are out of this world and makes me want to go back to chicago and just take an instagram tour of the city yes and he will fight you to the death over the superiority of like 80s Genesis versus uh, <laughs> the Peter Gabriel era, which I don't entirely agree with, but I like Phil Collins. I got no problem with the man. So, but yeah, I mean, reading his tweets, you'd think he was someone like uh, that dude waves, like some bratty yes. punk rocker, almost <laughs> like, like Jeff Rosenstock even. And then you hear his record and you're like, wait, I was just the same guy. But... Enough about me talking about him. Uh, let's listen to it. This is Opposite Middle by Riley Walker off of uh, Death Night Glance. That you, you, it wasn't me who wanted. I was just a happening, completely healing in your garden. Such a nightcap, the world looked so funny on me. Maps me 
so much for hanging with us here in episode 47 from Nashville and Chicago with love. So depending on when you're hearing this, the Halloween set um, might not have happened yet, might already have happened, might have happened a long time ago. Whatever it may be, we are excited for Fish's upcoming run in vegas uh it is tuesday october 30th as we're recording this i am leaving for vegas at 7 a.m very excited um excited for you guys to hear this episode but also excited to experience my last fish of 2018 um but before we get to that recapping the songs that we uh played here in this episode so in uh, segment one focusing on nashville the best three-day weekend city in america Played Silver Jews, Tennessee off of Bright Flight. And David played Jason Isbell's Hope the High Road off of Live at the Ryman. And then in segment two, Chicago, You Gave Us Wings. I played Caves, W-U-J, off of Never Endless. And David played Riley Walker's Opposite Middle off of Deaf Man Glance. We're on a reminder, we're on social media. You can find us at Twitter, at underscore beyond the pond, one word. We've got a Simplecast page. We love Simplecast. It's the official podcast provider of Osiris Podcast Network. It's uh, beyondthepond.simplecast.fm. Of course, on Spotify, we have the master playlist, which is also in our Twitter bio, Beyond the Pond podcast songs. We always try to update it um, shortly after the new episode goes live. Check out all the excellent podcasts on the Osiris Podcast Network at OsirisPod.com and leave us an iTunes review because we read them and they help raise our visibility in Apple land. Absolutely. And big shout out to Simplecast. Thank you for hosting our podcast. We love you a lot. Um, So publishing structure. um, So obviously this is yet another Beyond the Pond episode coming out late in the week. We've got one more in this fashion coming out here um, uh, November 8th, I believe, which will be our recap of Vegas and kind of an overall recap of Fishfall Tour as we transition to the holiday run in Mexico. Uh, Seven more shows that will loom after these Vegas shows. So we've still got some fish on the horizon and Got to imagine we've got 2019 to cover as well, but we'll be getting kind of back to normal after that. We've got uh, three more episodes coming out in um, November. Uh, we've got a, a very traditional rec- uh, episode and then a very, very special double episode. So every Tuesday following the uh, first two Thursdays in the month, 
you will get a new Beyond the Pond. So lots of stuff from us here. Thank you guys so much for listening, for supporting, for retweeting, for commenting, for sharing with your friends. It means a hell of a lot and really helps to push us through, um, you know, on a week to week basis. So thank you guys. Just say there's, I'd like to think I'll be able to stay for the Halloween set tomorrow night, but the three hour, three hour time difference, meaning the set's probably not going to start until what, like one o'clock, one thirty. Probably. I might. I'm seriously contemplating like staying off Twitter, going to bed, waking up, looking at my phone, and seeing what they played. But I don't think I have the willpower to do that. I've never had the willpower to do that. I, I get what you mean. It's a tough thing. Yeah. But I'm, I think, what, the last time they did Halloween in Vegas was chilling. No, no, it wasn't. Of course, it was Moon Age Daydream. It was uh, like Ziggy Stardust. Yeah, Ziggy Stardust, 2016. I think think i watched that live i can't i definitely i definitely watched thrilling chilling thrilling live because at that point my daughter was only three weeks old and she wasn't sleeping anyway so i figured all right if i'm gonna be up i might as well watch like the fucking fish halloween show <laughs> but yeah we'll see we'll see and on that note um as always, like Brian says, thank you for helping us get to this point. We always enjoy doing the summer tour recaps, and the next recap will be a Vegas recap. So uh, next time you're hearing us, hopefully we've had our brains dripping through our skull with our faces are melting in joy over what has just transpired in Las Vegas. But the only way to find out is coming back and holding hands and together going... Beyond the pond.